A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the midst of life, we are in death, etc. Lorry drivers can plunge off cliffs. A logger can be crushed by a falling tree. A donkey ride can spell disaster. All of these deaths happened. None of them, however, were recorded. But if these people had been pilots, then those final moments, those moments of tragedy and disaster, would have been preserved because they'd have been recorded recorded desperately trying to right the plane, rifling through the instructional manual, grappling with the controls, or flirting with the cabin crew, just as disaster was about to strike. Black boxes give us an insight into a moment where things that should never happen, things that we pray will never happen, happen. Hello, welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of invention from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. It's lovely to have you here. Last week, we covered the invention of the ejection seat. And today, I'm continuing the theme of health and safety gone mad. It's time for the iconic black box that lives silently listening in the cockpit of aeroplanes, ready to record the fateful final moments. This is the story of how it came to be. So get ready to meet David Warren, an Australian who invented the first ever black box. We'll find out how that first one worked and why they aren't actually black or boxes anymore. And my guest today to talk about all of this stuff is Brendan Walker, aka the Thrill Engineer. Brendan began his career as an aeronautical engineer before veering away for a life in art, as well as roller coaster engineering, TV presenting, and more. And throughout his career, he's been fascinated by our fascination with black boxes and what they record. And he's created plays and installations exploring their story. So he is the perfect guest. It's the second time we've had him on the show. So if you enjoy this, then don't forget to listen to our episode about the history of roller coasters that Brendan did as well. It's terrific. Enjoy.
There was a really amazing play. Well, it was sort of a play, I guess, a piece of theatre that was called Charlie Victor Romeo. And I saw it in America years and years ago, like about maybe around about 99 or 90, late 90s. Charlie Victor Romeo stands for Cockpit Voice Recorder. And what they did was they had a kind of fake or a kind of mock-up cockpit. Well, it was, I think maybe just like two chairs on stage. And then they played actual cockpit voice recordings of about a minute before. So you hear them sort of chatting. Everything's normal. They're talking about oh, where they're staying in the hotel and, oh, and, and oh, this is nice. And what did you do last weekend? And suddenly everything goes crazy. Them. And then it just goes quiet. And then on stage, there's this big screen where they kind of has the flight number and what happened. It tells you a little bit about the history. It was the most extraordinary, beautifully done bit of theatre. Like really, you know, you might think it's macabre, and, but it wasn't at all. It was just really interesting. That sort of juxtaposition between absolute banality and then total panic sometimes, or just hearing how pilots react to difficult situations. But then we get a bit more information. And you didn't see that, I'm guessing. <laughs> but, by the way, you're looking and nodding. You're kind of like, you're like going, I didn't see that. I didn't see <laughs> it, but I recognise all of the dramatic twists that you talk about there. Mm. And I think it is so ripe for studying in a sort of theatrical sense or presenting because yeah. it is. And, you know, you're sort of being privileged to actually being part of people's very real exactly. lived emotions at that time. And I think the recordings themselves, that is why they have such a that sense of immediacy, even if you're just reading them as written word. They're also not just panic. It's not just people screaming and shouting. It's very considered language. It's, just, it's, it's interesting just how the language changes and how suddenly when you're faced against something potentially catastrophic or actually catastrophic, how we behave as humans. And the black box recorder just gives you that extraordinary insight that, you know, anyway, it was interesting. It's worth pointing out at this point just how vanishingly rare aircraft disasters are. If you think about how many flights there are, just go on Skyscanner or any of those things. I mean, the statistic I always have is at any one point, there's a million people in the air, which is a city's worth, which is yeah. crazy. And there are never any accidents. Well, very occasionally there are accidents. Yeah. Of course there are, but... Well, I have another statistic, which is you're more likely to die falling off a donkey on a beach than you are to die in an aviation disaster in your lifetime. Brendan, I've been saying it for a long time. We need donkey voice recorders on donkeys so when people fall off quite right we can capture that moment for hilarity as well as obviously for forensics yes of course there needs to be some sort of public investigation into <laughs> donkey beach accidents yeah but hey listen thanks for coming on the show it's nice to see you as ever it's always good to see you i'm always happy you when, too when you too here. let's not delve into history quite yet how do they work what do they look like? So if we had held one in our hands, I said at the beginning it's not black and it's not a box, so what does it look like? Well, they've gone through a bit of an evolution, but right now they are bright orange boxes. They're the size of, let's say, a couple of shoe boxes strapped together, that kind of size. They're metallic, but they're painted, and they'll have a few little um, plugs on the side for plugging in data cables, you know, masses of data cables. So sort of like, I don't know, 80-pin socket on the side of it. And like uh, the sort of little drawers that you keep the pizzas in when you're on an EasyJet flight, you know, they want to warm up your pizzas on the front. They're about that kind of size, you know. And what do they record? Is it just voice? There's microphones in the cockpit. And is it kind of like a magnetic tape on a loop? So it records a certain amount of time and then records over it. It doesn't record like the whole flight forever, does it? Or no, I mean, there are two components to the modern black box 
which is the flight data recorder. So this is the data which is captured from all the control services, you know, the rudders, the elevators, the trim, airspeed, altitude, all that stuff is being uh, sampled, well, now at a very high rate, onto, well, they're currently using solid state recorders now, so they're moving onto microchips. But until fairly recently, everything was recorded onto a magnetic medium. And it's the voice recorder, the cockpit voice recorder, CBR, which is the bit which we think about when we think of black box recordings. And they are, or, you know, say until they moved onto solid state, they are recorded onto magnetic wire. Actually, just talking about recording flight data, I mean, the Rolls-Royce engines now, I mean, they are basically just producing data in real time all the time. And all the data from those engines, how they're performing, gets beamed back to Derby. And it's unbelievable how much data an aircraft produces now. It's like a, just a data machine. Presumably, you could just have microphones in the cockpit that just beam back in real time. Yeah, but that'd be awful. I'd be, I sat in quite, you'd honestly, listen to bloody pilots banging on. My dad, for example. Is he a pilot? Yeah, he was a 747-400 captain for BA back in the day. And I used to fly with him. And it was always a kind of a treat because I would be in the jump seat in the days where you could fly in the jump seat before we went insane and locked the cockpit doors. I didn't want to tell my dad that it was really boring because my dad would be talking about dad things to the <laughs> first officer. So I used to go and just nip back and sit in, wherever, in the back of the plane and drink martinis and watch movies. I thought you were going to say you just fiddled with the switches. <laughs> I wonder what this one does. <laughs> no, I certainly didn't fiddle with the switches. I knew my way around a 747 pretty well. Okay, was it ever black and was it ever a box? Like, what is it made of? So a plane crashes, which is awful, obviously. We kind of root around over the wreckage and they find the black box. Oh, just fun fact. The reason why they're orange, obviously it's a visual thing, so you can see them, but it's a very special orange called international orange, and it's the least occurring colour in nature. There you go, fun fact. Let's go into the history, I suppose. Was it, it must have been black. Why do we start calling it black box? Well, let's start with why it originally was the black box. So at the start of aviation, clearly there were a lot of experimental aircraft, and they wanted to be able to, well, any new instrumentation that was made, was made in aluminium. So I know you've sat in old cockpits of World War One, World War Two planes, and everything was aluminium, and it was all painted black. It was what they did back then. So anything which was secret or experimental or even early radar equipment, they started to become known as black box technology because everything sat in these little aluminium boxes which were inserted into the aircraft. So this idea of sort of relating new technology and black boxes and aviation started to develop hand in hand with the evolution of aviation. And so there were flight recorders way back, 1920s. There was a pair of inventors in Finland before the Second World War who were developing photographic techniques. So basically they were running film and recording information from flight data, so from control services, as the light images on photographic film. And clearly it wasn't designed to capture data if there was an accident, but for developmental reasons, collecting data was really important. Yeah. When you say filming, were they filming the flight deck so you could kind of see the instruments? Yeah, so there was a mixture. Yeah, very <laughs> well, early ones they were like apt. Waving their hands going, oh crap. <laughs> yeah. 
So it was really just to capture the instrumental dating in real time. I think they became more refined in those methods, so essentially leaving marks on the photographic film, so which is a little bit more like digital type recording. So there was this idea of recording data, very useful for analysing aircraft in development, but nothing really about recording information at the moment of a disaster. And the idea also of recording voices onto different types of media was also being used during the Second World War for pilots, particularly, I think there's some early recordings from Lancaster bombers that they recorded conversations as experiments on these aircraft. And again, it was just for a historic documentation, I think really was why they were doing it. But the idea of putting those two things together, flight data recording, and cockpit voice recording. This is what, well, I'm going to bring his name up. Yeah, let's have the inventor. (laughs) Because presumably it must have been from a a reaction of something, like something happened. It's like, oh, crikey, we better invent a thing. Yeah. So post-Second World War, England have developed jet technology, you know, which obviously then we sold on to the US. But, you know, we've now got the world of commercial aviation starting to blossom post-Second World War. And England and the Empire, the dwindling empire. Well, don't the Empire will never dwindle. <laughs> I'm joking before I complain. I'm, I'm gonna say it will if we have anything to do about it, does. <laughs> Post Second World War, the Commonwealth was incredibly important to the British economy. And the evolution of the de Havilland's comet aircraft. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's coming back. It was the comet, the, the de Havilland comet, first jet passenger plane, all kinds of issues, and they went, oh crap. Yeah, so there were three of them, famously between 1953 and 1954, crashed in various locations around the Commonwealth. And after the third one, they went, right, okay, there's a pattern yeah. here. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, something's yeah. happening. And it's, you know, the fact that. There were so many experimental aircraft taking to the air post-Second World War. So we're going, got all this fantastic technology, let's just use it for the good of humanity and do stuff with it. And so there was so many stuff literally taking off, probably before we knew everything right. about it. And so yeah. that's why there's quite a lot of disasters, even I think Donald Campbell with his boats, etc. All this people pushing the boundaries constantly. So the comet crashes, and there's a big commission set up, which is Commonwealth-wide, And David Warren, who is working at the Aeronautical Research Laboratories in Australia, is asked to join this commission because he was an expert in aviation fuel. So he had nothing at all to do with avionics. Maybe this new kind of jet fuel for high altitudes was an issue. And so he sat on the board and that's where he started to get involved. And he quickly realised, he's going, well, how high were they flying? What were they doing? People going, don't know. What speed did they get to? Don't know. And he was going, far too many questions. How is he supposed to operate? And this is where he started doing his own private research. So tell me, David Warren, who he? David Warren, go right back to his early days. He loved chemistry. He loved electronics. I think his dad bought him a crystal radio set. He was a ham, amateur radio operator. I mean, his dad sadly died in a plane crash when David was nine years old. Crikey. And is that the motivation, do you think? Well, presumably it must be the motivation. Well, I think it was because the aeroplane itself crashed into the sea and the debris sank. 
and I think it was outside Melbourne. It was quite a big deal because his dad had just taken on a new missionary role. So it was quite a popular man, his father. So it was widely reported. So I think, I mean, that must, nine years old, that must stick with you for some time. I mean, crikey, there's an innovation story. It's like your dad dies in a plane crash when you're nine and you're also a radio enthusiast and sound recordist. (laughs) It's not a big leap to work out where he got that no, idea from. No, but he actually pursued his passion for chemistry, strangely. I mean, he went to, I think it was the, the Woomerang Rocket Association or club he joined and then In went Australia, to... Yeah, Woomerang? it is Australia, yeah, yeah, Woomerang, yes. And he then went to Imperial College, studied aeronautical engineering, where I went to study, 40 years later, I have to add, and then came back to work for the Aeronautical Research Laboratories, developing aviation fuel because obviously after the second world war we got jet aircraft and there were massive evolutions in the composition of aviation fuel i've just heard one of the listeners screaming down the um microphone <laughs> saying to me it's not woomerang it's woomera oh <laughs> we thought it was woomerang because we thought of boomerang <laughs> but it is australian this is where they did the rockets i just suddenly just as you were talking there i was like wait is it really woomerang no it's woomera Woomerang, Woomerang. They won't mind. I mean, one of the funny stories that I saw his memoirs, and one of the funny stories was just before he started working on the black box, he was working for the, I think, the Department of Agriculture, working out how much aviation fuel was required to create enough carbon monoxide to kill rabbits in their burrows. I know. It's just myxomatosis, but rabbits in Australia. I think they were nibbling away at the crops. So he was kind of an inventive bloke and obviously turning his talents to all sorts of things. I've actually got a a little memorandum that he wrote. I might read it to you, see what you think. It says, this is from David Warren, uh, principle of the suggested device. So this is actually his first memorandum about the black box. He says, it may be assumed that in almost all incidents, the pilot receives some pre-indication, either by sight, feel of the controls, automatic alarm or instrument reading. In most cases, this would evoke a complaint of difficulty or a shout of warning to attract the attention of the co-pilot. To preserve the valuable evidence offered by these few seconds conversation, it is suggested that the following simple device could be fitted to all major aircraft. A small magnetic recorder could be made in which a continuous closed circuit of steel wire passes an erasing head followed by a recording head in, say, a two-minute cycle. Such a device would provide a permanent memory of the conversation in the control cabin for the two minutes immediately prior to switching off, which would occur automatically in the case of an accident. There you go. Wow. Simples. Yeah, it's so concise, yet absolutely contemporary. And I think some of the other things he mentioned in there, I think there was one idea that he had of ejecting the black box in the case of an accident so it doesn't end up in the disaster. I think after an aviation incident in 2014, thinking of actually instigating that, making that a requirement, Civil Aviation Authority requirement, that they have this ejectable black box as well. So he had a massive amount of foresight, but able to write it so succinctly. Really good. And actually, there's another little paragraph here. He says, careless control or error of judgment, as is often suspected to be the cause of landing and takeoff accidents would probably elicit criticism, suggestion or warning from the co-pilot. So he's kind of thinking about, well, actually, this is the kind of legal aspect of accident investigation, and this would also be useful. Yeah, and it's amazing that he's thinking about 
the dynamics of the people yeah. in that aircraft. It isn't just a machine he's interested in. He knows that people are critical to these stories. And for the real nerds, this is Mechanical Engineer Technical Memorandum Number 142, as opposed to 143 or 141. Which was obviously about the euthanization of rabbits. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. He had seen, actually, the year before, a wire voice recorder in a trade show made by a company called Telefunken. I know Telefunken. Yeah, so German, are they? Well, they must be. Well, they must like be. Telefunken. <laughs> it's just like, it's a good name, isn't it? Tele- I remember oh. seeing it on things, Telefunken. It's beautiful. And he, he actually bought, he bought one of these wire recorders. And so he had that from the year before. And he said, well, can't we get one of these on a plane? And he was actually turned down. So his first thought was, let's get one of these on a plane and start to record stuff and see what happens. He was blocked by his boss because he said, no, you work in aviation fuel. You can't be doing it. Classic kind of like innovation story. So he went off and did it anyway. People knew what he was doing, but it wasn't really recorded in uh, papers or minutes of meetings. But he put one of these things on an aircraft in an aircraft cockpit. There's so much noise. There's lots of constantly so the sound of aviation electronics going on the sound of air so he started cleaning up the voice recordings he used a technique called band pass filtering so the voice range you know is a very specific frequency but the ability of audio medium to record stuff at very high frequency and very low frequency he thought i've got all this like bandwidth free i'm gonna maybe start sticking some information in there so he found a way of using this wire recorder which was designed for voices to actually start putting some very simple information like the guys had been using photographic medium you know 20 years earlier to start inserting bits of flight data recording so that really was those first experiments were the very first 
black box recordings, I think, in their truest sense, when that moment of genius to bring those two elements together. What about that? I mean, as well as the kind of recording engineering, what about the idea that, okay, this is going to have to survive a plane crash? So when all the rest of the plane is obliterated, how do we make something that's going to survive? You see his first memorandum that he produced, and he starts to go through some very practical things, going exactly those questions. What is the force of an aviation crash? How much force do we need to withstand? There's obviously going to be fire. What if we can't find it? You know, the ideas of painting it a colour, putting streamers on it, putting a beacon on it so it could be found. So those ideas start to appear in this very first memo. And then also, say, the temperatures and also impact. So again, it's been through various iterations, but currently where we're at is there's commonly accepted that these boxes need to withstand a force of nearly three and a half thousand Gs. So, I mean, that's just phenomenal. Wait, okay, just, okay, three and a half thousand years. So, for example, we are now experiencing 1G, sitting here doing a podcast. I went into one of those centrifuges once, you know, the astronaut centrifuges. I think I got to be like four and I started freaking out, which is nothing. You know, astronauts, they and well, not just astronauts, you know, fast jet pilots train up to 9G, which is getting pretty hectic. And, you know, for the split seconds, you go above 9G, but 9G is kind of, where you are. So three and a half thousand G, that's going to be, that, that, that hurts. That would hurt. Actually, it wouldn't hurt. You wouldn't feel No, I think in that split second, I don't think, I mean, this is sort of maybe a little bit of solace. You know it's coming for quite some time, but when it happens, it's over in a, before your mind is even able to comprehend. But it is exactly that you're saying. It's not sustained for a long period of time. So actually, the aircraft would be in free fall for most of the time. So the black box would almost, and the people in there would be experiencing zero G, as they're falling, but then at that moment of impact, it happens so quickly that it's this sort of pancaking effect as this mass gets squashed into the ground. So three and a half thousand Gs. So they've been looking into uh, combinations of multi-layered structures, a little bit like, I suppose, those honeycomb structures, which are incredibly thin-walled, but so strong if you're actually pushing them in one particular direction. You know, if you turn them on the side, you can pinch them very easily with your fingers, but in one direction you can stand on them. So the combination of materials and design of walls, and then also the materials themselves, you go from a very thin aluminium foil around the electronics, then there's a core of dense material, which must be, you know, I think there's a ceramics in that material. I can't quite remember its constituency, but this is now to start making them heatproof as well. So these things are now heatproof for... I think it's about 30 minutes is the international standard now. And they have to be able to withstand temperatures up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the heat of lava. Basically, you couldn't make an aeroplane out of this material, That the old joke, because it would be too heavy to fly and other problems. Yeah. <laughs> One of the arguments early on was we can't afford to put this on an aircraft because weight is a premium. And so there was a real fight. And actually, even to increase the length of time you might record requires extra mm. tape and stuff. So I seem to remember, I may be misremembering this from my childhood as well. My dad, who I mentioned, when he was based in Manchester and he was on 111 out of Manchester. So this was early 80s, I think, before he was on the 400. He was on the runway and one of his engines blew up and everyone got off the plane totally fine. There was no casualties or anything like that. And they used the 
voice recorder, I think, in the sort of post-mortem of the incident. And it was kind of like my dad, because he was a very good pilot, was like, this is how to be a pilot. It was kind of used as a kind of, this is exactly how it should be. So we come on to, particularly in recording pilots' voices, the objections that unions like Balpa, who represent pilots, there were lots of complaints and resistance from pilots that they might become culpable for mistakes. That's interesting, that. Yeah. When security cameras kept coming along, that idea of, it raises questions, doesn't it? It's like, well, crikey, do I have to watch what I say now? I mean, what if I make <laughs> an inappropriate joke or, I don't know, like, how's that all going to work? Yeah, exactly. I think they were appeased by, said, actually, it's only two minutes and it'll only be captured in an emergency and maybe it'll actually help. Yeah, and probably it'll be on a flight that you died on, so there'll be no... <laughs> actually, that's no, that's no comfort at all, is it? Oh, God, you're going to be held, held accountable. I think some of the things that are captured, which have been really interesting, there was a flight in 1999 out of Stansted Airport. It was a Korean cargo plane, one that I became really interested in because it's only up the road in Epping Forest from where I live. So we start to get, I suppose, evidence that, particularly in that flight, there were social dynamics that were at play that led to the eventual disaster. And in fact, you know, so these two pilots, there was a pilot and there was a co-pilot. They both had military backgrounds and they were both from different social stratas in society. And so there was a real air of deference from the co-pilot. The co-pilot knew that there was something wrong. So I think there'd been reported one of the pressure tubes on the port side was blocked, something like this. And essentially the pilot was making a very usual manoeuvre, banking left. But if you know how to fly a plane, which I've got some rudimentary ideas, if you're banking left, you also want to pull up as well. Otherwise you're going to start losing altitude and dipping down. But he thought he was actually flying at the correct altitude. The co-pilot was looking out the window going, uh, no, we're actually slipping, literally slipping out the sky. But he left it too late before, like, essentially saying, excuse me. Gosh. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but that's interesting. So actually the psychological component about human interaction between first officer, captain. A lot of the time they're going through the ABCs. Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And then obviously, I mean, there was another set of flights around 2018, some uh, 747 Maxes which Boeing had installed some new software on them to do the trim, automatic trimming, to make sure that uh, the aircraft were stable and level. And the trim was basically making decisions for the pilots. The pilots had no idea. And they were making false assumptions about altitude. And there was one of the flights where the last moments of the recording are the pilots saying, have you got the manual? And they're looking through the pages, reading through the manual. Is this this recent? Is this a 737 MAX, do you mean? Relatively recent? Sorry, yeah, sorry, they are. It's the 737 MAX. 737 MAX, yeah. No, 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 yeah. Yeah, It was the uh, the Lion Air crashes. That was in Indonesia. On those aircraft, I'm just looking here now, there was 189 passengers and crew died. So obviously a big deal. Yeah, it's a massive deal for Boeing, you know, a huge deal for Boeing. I mean, it's really, you know, shaking Boeing. Grounding the aircraft, loss of confidence in the aircraft, wasn't just the flight data recorder. In fact, actually, the flight data recorder, I believe on the first accident, everything looked normal because obviously the computer was reporting it was doing what it should do. It was only through the conversations that they managed to capture from the in-flight going, why didn't they know how to turn this thing off? What was going on? That this issue actually 
became revealed. So, you know, that mixture of sometimes you want to look at the data, sometimes you really want to be looking at uh, how the human in the loop is actually responding to what they're being presented with. Do you think, just as a sort of final thought, we talk a lot about driverless cars and things. I remember having conversations with my dad about, you know, not having pilots in aircraft and having everything automated. Is that ever going to happen, do you think? I mean, he was always like, absolutely not, for the obvious reasons. But, you know, you wonder now, with the advent of AI and everything else, do we just take humans out of the loop altogether? Gosh, it's becoming... Even when I was studying aeronautical engineering, working in the industry in the early 90s, there was always this discussion about, are we... You know, not discussion, actually people developing pilotless aircraft. The more you take them out, the less trained they are and able to respond to data... Maybe it's a comfort thing. Maybe we like to know that ultimately our life is in the hands of another human. But that's a scary thought too, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is when you think about driverless cars and you look at the statistics about how rubbish the human brain is compared to, you know, modern computers. Well, I've got to say, you know, I'm sure you've been in driverless cars. I've been in them and it's amazing how quickly you get used to it. Even though at first you go, wait, this is weird. But then after 10 minutes, you're like, who would ever drive a car again? Now, where things go wrong, obviously, that's the horror, isn't it? When things are going right, it's a beautiful sort of relinquish of control and this idea of comfort and leisure. But when things go wrong, it's like you don't want to be in the hands of a cybernet and Terminator. and That's a different podcast. (laughs) Although I've noticed actually on my podcast, and regular listeners may have noticed as well, that the longer the, the conversation goes on, the quicker we get to talking about chat GPT <laughs> at some point. That's the new rule. We have to end there. <laughs> no, exactly, we do. Yes, well, maybe we need chatbots just to fill up the voice data recordings with uh, aimless chit-chat. There you go. Brendan, pleasure as ever. It's always a pleasure. I love chatting to you as ever. So thank you very much. And come back on and we'll chat about something else. Yeah, lovely. Really enjoyed it. I mean... I've got such a huge library of air disaster stories, I'm now going to have to delve in and look at some of the specifics. But it's a bit like looking through the TV times, you know, it's like there are so many stories. Slightly bit more macabre. (laughs) Oh, yeah, a bit more macabre. Everyone ends in a disaster. Yes, it is. Everyone ends in a disaster. Anyway, we'll see you soon, Brendan. Thank you. Cheers. See you, Dallas. Bye. So there we go. Black Boxes, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to go back and listen to our extensive back catalogue of interesting stories. Uh, We have wide-ranging interests here on Patented, as do you. So don't forget to get stuck into those and tell your friends and family all about the series. Do the thing that the algorithms like. Hit subscribe, hit like, um, and all those other bits and bobs that we have to do these days. And most importantly, if you've got a suggestion for a topic or a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com. No story is too odd. No story is too bizarre. No story is too interesting. See you next time. This is the story of the Wad. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.